Good morning and welcome to our program today for the Culinary Historians of Chicago. I'm Scott Warner and I'm president of our organization, which is now in its 26th year. Today's peachy program, everything you'd want to know about peaches, including the dark side of peach history in this country. And you know that it isn't about a blemish on the peach, it's about a blemish on the peach history. And I'm going on and on about this, but uh, it isn't all peachy. That's all I can say, even though they're delicious. Our speaker is Belinda Smith Sullivan, a native Chicagoan who now lives in the South. Belinda is a chef, food writer, spice blends entrepreneur, a commercially rated pilot, uh, you know, typical food person, right? <laughs> and author of the newly released cookbook, Just Peachy. I met Belinda this May at this, uh, the International Association of Culinary Professionals annual conference, which was held in Santa Fe. And I was so impressed, and I asked her to speak for us the next time she comes back home. And she's back home now, and she's going to talk to us. So, Belinda, could you come on down and give us the real pits about peaches? <laughs> Good morning, everyone, and I'm so excited to be here. Uh, as Scott said, Chicago is my home. I was born and raised on the south side, went to Harlan High School uh, before I, of course, left to go away to college and really never came back home after that, just kind of lived everywhere. But I uh, do have this passion for peaches, and, I'll, and I want to share all of that with you, tell you how the book came about, why I wrote it, uh, how I just developed this love of peaches that I have and my journey to writing the book, because it was a long, lonely journey. But uh, again, thank you for having me. As I said, I grew up on the south side of Chicago, but my parents were from Mississippi, the delta of Mississippi, uh, the land of cotton and catfish, it's called. And every summer, my brothers and I got shipped off to Mississippi because my mother felt that all children should spend time on a farm, that they needed to know where food comes from, that you just don't go into a Kroger or a Jewel, as it, as it is, uh, and pick up whatever you need, that there's a process to this thing, that you know animals are grown, uh, uh, vegetables and fruits are planted and they're harvested, and she wanted us to see that. So off we went to Charleston, Mississippi every summer, and my grandmother would spend the entire summer canning peaches. Miraculously, all these peaches would show up on their doorstep uh, every year, all during the summer, and we would sit on the porch with my grandmother and peel peaches and cut them up and got them ready for canning, uh, for uh, preserving. Uh, my grandfather even made peach brandy <laughs> that I helped with, and I think for every bottle we jarred, I had to just take a little swig out of it. So at the end of the evening, of course, my grandmother would find us kids under the kitchen table, <laughs> passed out, <laughs> from testing the brandy. Uh, eventually, my grandmother and grandparent, well, both my grandparents would pass, on, pass away, and so there were no more, Miss, no more Mississippi trips. But my mom and my aunts and I used to go up to the southern part of Michigan and to these pick-your-own farms and uh, pick peaches. And 
course, the whole process would start all over again with my mother doing the canning, the preserving, not the brandy so much, but, uh, and so I left home just with this feeling of having accomplished something during the summers and that I had discovered this wonderful thing called a peach because we didn't get many of them here when I was growing up many, many years ago. Peaches were a treat and they weren't available all summer long like they are where I live now in the Peach County of South Carolina, Edgeville County. We get peaches in mid-May and we continue to get them to almost the end of September. So by the time the summer rolls around, at the, at, at the end of the summer, by the time the peaches are no longer available, you're tired of them anyway. Uh, but I remember that they were a real treat when I was growing up here. I retired from the Coca-Cola company. I was on my last assignment with Coca-Cola out, out of Atlanta uh, and living in Johannesburg, South Africa for three years and repatriated, as the word is called, to no position. And you understand that when you go on an international assignment that you may not be able to be uh, reinstated in the company or the position that you had and you agree that if that happens and you cannot be placed that you separate from the company. So I separated from the company and for a year just kind of sulked around, didn't kind of know what I wanted to do and my husband said to me one day, ever since I've known you, you've always talked about going to culinary school. This is your opportunity, do it. So I picked up the phone the next morning, called Johnson & Wells, applied and I was accepted. So off I go to culinary school as a non-traditional student, which means I was the oldest student in the class, or in the whole school, I think. One day the dean calls me in and he says, why are you here? <laughs> he says, surely someone your age is not gonna work in a restaurant. I said, no, I'm not here to work in a restaurant. But my idea was that I wanted to write cookbooks. I thought, that's the easiest thing in the world. Who can't write a cookbook? Well, it's not that easy. <laughs> Publishers these days, they have their own idea of what it takes uh, to be a successful cookbook author. And one of those things is that you have to be either an Emerald <laughs> or an Ina Garden on television. You have to have a blog with 10,000 followers. You have to be a subject matter expert in something. You have to have an agent. And you just have to be a known quantity, like, you know, run the best restaurant in town, like Husk in uh, Charleston. South Carolina, if anyone's ever been there. I didn't have any of those things. So I started my own personal chef service, but now all along, I'm developing, well, let me just step back and say that when we moved to where we are in South Carolina now, one day, I think we'd only been there a couple of months, and so it's summertime, and I know that it's peach season. So one day, my neighbor stopped me in my car, where are you going? Oh, I'm going across the river to Georgia to get some peaches. Well, why? Because Georgia's the peach state. She gets in the car with me, we drive up Highway 25, and all you can see for miles are peach trees right there in my county. I was living right around the corner from all this sweetness and didn't even know it. So at that point, I started to develop all of these recipes for myself after having searched endlessly for a peach cookbook, of which there was none. There were none. Uh, so I started experimenting on my own with peaches and developing my own recipes. Then I went away to culinary school and came back and I said, well, while I'm working at this personal chef business thing, I'm gonna continue to develop my recipes and write my cookbook. 
So after about three years, I have the cookbook written. It's where I want it to be. It's what I thought it should be. And uh, so I start looking for an agent. They wouldn't even return my calls. Remember, I'm an unknown quantity. Nobody, I'm a nothing. No. So then I went directly to some publishers. Who's interested in peaches? Me. And there are no other peach cookbooks out there. Surely you can't tell me, nah, nobody's interested in peaches. Well, as you know, the publishing in the uh, cookbook world, things, there's this ebb and flow that, that happens. Uh, what's popular this year will not be popular the next year. For instance, uh, you mentioned you're going to have Peter Reinhardt here. Peter Reinhardt was my mentor. He gave me my first food writing opportunities at Johnson & Wales, and he wrote the foreword for my book. Uh, so I go to, again, there's no one interested in this, in this cookbook. So I put the cookbook away. Five years later, I'm visiting a friend in France who owns a hotel there called the Hotel Diderot. It's in the Loire Valley in a little medieval town called Chinon. And what are you doing? I'm writing a cookbook. Yeah, been there, done that. No, I have an agent, and there's a publisher who's interested in it. Well, what's your book about? Oranges. <laughs> I'm like, people are interested in oranges, but they're not interested in peaches? Who are these people? So I tell her my story. Well, I've written this cookbook. It's about peaches. and uh. So she says, call my agent when you get home. So I did. I got back home. I called the agent. She says, she lives in Austin, Texas. She says, I like peaches. Send it to me. I'll see what I can do with it. A year and a half, nothing. So I'd written her off again. I forgot about it. March of last year, it's my birthday. I drive. I live so far in the country. We have to drive 25 miles to the nearest supermarket. But now I've driven all the way to Atlanta to shop for my birthday. And I'm checking into my hotel, and I get a text message, call me. I call Martha back, the agent. She says, I need to talk to you. I've got some good and I've got some bad news. So I, I go to the bar <laughs> with my suitcase. I didn't even get up to the room and I ordered a glass of champagne. It's my birthday, right? And I'd spent the whole day shopping in Atlanta, unsuccessful. Had been any other day, trunk would have been full, but I couldn't find anything this particular day. So I said, I'm gonna at least have a glass of champagne. So I said, what's up? She says, well, I do have good news and bad news. So the good news is that this morning I got an offer on your book. Really? What's the bad news? W wait before you tell me, another glass of champagne. Because <laughs> I've got to brace myself for this bad news that's about to happen. <laughs> so she says, I was on my way out of my office this evening, and I got two email messages that I'll have two more contracts on my desk in the, in the morning. Now, I went from not even being able to get arrested with this cookbook to now I have three offers that I have to consider, and that was very difficult. One offer, I would have, been, I would have accepted it, I would have been perfectly happy, but now I have three. It's very difficult to weigh that. You know, how do you weigh one offer against the other offers? But finally did, and in May, we signed the contract with a deadline of September 1st, four months. Usually, most authors get a year to a year and a half to write a cookbook. And technically, even though my recipes were all done, there's still a lot of other stuff in here that I wanted to include because I didn't want it to be just a cookbook. I wanted it to be a 
impeach resource. You know, I wanted you to be able to uh, have access to additional information, like how to can, how to freeze. I wanted you to know about the different peach varietals that are out there, when to use what varietal, uh, you know, the difference between clings, free stones, and semi-free stones, uh, peach festivals that are held all over the U.S. I wanted you to have all of that information. So uh, I ended up taking the first offer that, uh, that came in, uh, and I... De delivered the book, I think I was seven days early with it. And then the hard part starts, the waiting. Because I originally had a release date of March 1st, and then it got pushed back to May 14th. The hardest seven months of my life was waiting for that cookbook to be released. But it was, and I was very, very happy. I think you'll find that it's a very nice book. It's a beautiful book. I just over the moon because usually first time uh, authors and their first books are usually all in paperback and they were nice enough to give me a hard cover and uh, it's a beautiful book and it's photographed by Mark, by Mark Bowden. He's like the number one food photographer in the US and uh, when I submitted my original proposal to my agent, she called me and she said, why are you including this photographer to do your book? You're not going to get him. He's the busiest food photographer that there is in the U.S. I said, well, I met him, and I asked him, and he said he'd do it. And her, her answer was, you? You're, you're nobody. You know, I, every, if I learned nothing else through this entire process, I, I'm nobody. I'm, wasn't there an Emily Dickinson poem? I'm nobody. Who are you? Are you nobody too? <laughs> so I'm convinced, even though a couple of hundred years ago she wrote that poem about me. But I kept saying, yeah, he's, you? Why would he want to work with you? Anyway, I got him. He worked with me, and he did a wonderful job on, on the book. But that whole process is very, again, it was just a very, very lonely journey writing the cookbook because I did not leave my house. I did not go outside for the three and a half months of summer, which in South Carolina, where it is today 103 degrees, wasn't a bad thing, <laughs> except I have a little dog who likes to go out every now and then. So that was the journey to, to writing this book and getting it published seven years later, 2012 to 2018, maybe longer than seven. But uh, what I did learn in researching peaches was very interesting that peaches had this kind of this dark history because the, the question that I needed to answer for myself that I wanted to answer is why does Georgia call themselves the peach state? Why isn't Carolina known as the peach state even though we're just number two, California is number one, but that's in commercial peaches. And when I say commercial peaches, I mean peaches that you, the Del Monte in the can or the frozen ones that you get in the freezer section. Uh, but South Carolina is number, we're number two in production, but number one in peaches that are actually consumed or eaten by uh, customers. Uh, and Georgia's number three. South Carolina produces three times the amount of peaches as Georgia, and they do taste better. <laughs> I live right across the river from Augusta, Georgia, and all of the people I know, come over 
to the other side to, to get their peaches from South Carolina because they're known to be, and we're known as the tastier peach state. But, so when I started doing all this research about, or trying to f answer my own question, why is Georgia known as the peach state and not South Carolina, I just started coming across all of this old history and I found it fascinating. So I just wanted to share a little bit of that with you and maybe it'll give you a little bit of insight too about why there is even a peach industry today because there really was not a need for it. No one wanted it and uh, it's, it's, again, it's just very interesting. Peaches, the peach pits were, were brought over here in the 1600s when the first Spanish monks came over and they just kind of scattered them all over the eastern coast and it was the Native Americans after that who really spread peaches all throughout the mid-Atlantic, throughout the south and the southeast. They were the first ones to have this concept of peach orchards and they uh, were the first ones to figure out how to cure and preserve peaches by drying them out. Then you fast forward to, as you know, then settlers started coming over from not only the north but from Europe. And around that time, President, I believe it was Jackson, kind of pushed the Native Americans out of their own territory and moved them, you've probably heard of the Trail of Tears, so everybody was moved to west of the Mississippi and all of the land was either sold to very wealthy owners who turned them into plantations for growing cotton or into giving them to farmers. Now by this time, peaches were feral, they were just growing feral all over the place, wild. And uh, so the plantation owners who had these cotton plantations uh, didn't know what to do with them. They weren't interested in, in selling them. They weren't interested in growing them. All they were interested in was cotton because cotton was a much faster return on their investments. You plant cotton every year, you harvest it every year, and you get your money. Peach trees take four, at least four, most time five years for them ready to harvest. And they weren't willing to spend that or make that type of investment in perpetuating this peach thing, besides which, back then, nobody really ate fruit. Fruit was not a popular thing back in the early 1800s. Um, not until about, maybe after the Civil War. Yeah. No, apples are grown more north. Peaches, the, the, yeah, the climate down there where they grow peaches, we, we do peaches, we do pears, I mean, we do peaches and uh, plums, lots of strawberries, berries, but apples have always been more of a northern, northern crop, which is why Washington State, you know, and Michigan and all along that northern part of the United States is where most, uh, so, the, after the uh, Native Americans were moved, all of the orchards became feral, and so that land was taken from them, given to smaller farmers, who found that they couldn't do anything with them either because no one was eating fruit, so no one was buying the fruit. So they eventually abandoned their lands and moved west because they heard there was more opportunity out there. So now the uh, cotton plantation owners were able to expand their areas where they could grow cotton 
And anyone here who gardens knows of something that's called crop rotation. So after you'd planted so many years, planted cotton in one area so many years, then you'd have to abandon that area and move on to find some more fertile ground to plant it. At, uh, the owners were even cutting down natural forests to give them more land to plant their, uh, their cotton. About that time, Europeans were coming over and were looking for more places to expand to. And you've got the environmentalists and the horticulturalists who went down to the south and saw what was going on, especially in Georgia. The land almost looked like a war zone because you had patches and patches of land that was not fertile anymore. You couldn't do anything with it. Uh, and again, they could not, they tried to reason with the uh, owners to start growing more fruit and why we don't need fruit, no one eats fruit, and well, why don't you do something about these peach orchards? And maybe, you know, you can sell them and export it to the north, because in New York, they were wanting fruit and more, uh, you know, varied types of crops. But cotton was king at that time from about 1800 to about until just up to the Civil War. And the government had, remember, uh, criminalized importing slaves. Slaves became very expensive at that time, and the owners were able to see that this, just, this peach thing, these wild peaches, just, be, just might be a way to feed the slaves. So it went something like this. They had pigs. They let the pigs eat the, the peaches. They'd feed the pigs to the slaves. That was all they ate, just about their whole diet was... So the, the pigs ate the peaches. They fed the, the pigs to the slaves. The slaves were healthier. They were able to work longer hours picking cotton, which the end goal was to create more wealth for the landowners. Well, about that time, again, is when the horticulturalists and the environmentalists came down to Georgia, and they tried to reason with the uh, owners, listen, we have people immigrating to the country. They need to expand. We think that this could be a nice uh, area down here to grow fruits, to grow more vegetables, to grow other crops. Plus, we could use these feral trees, feral peach trees, develop more orchards, use them ornamentally, because all over Europe, the peach trees were used as an ornament in gardens and things like that. And so that's what they were trying to do. They were trying to beautify uh, the land and Suburbanization came about then. They could see where they could turn all these vast pockets of just really bad soil areas into communities that people would want to live in, but first they needed to be beautified. Well, along came the, uh, well at that time, all of the eight states in the, in the South were looking at secession from the, from the Union. They wanted to pull away so that they could continue uh, their cotton business and uh, not be bothered about the fact that they had slaves because the, uh, the northerners are really putting the pressure on them at that time to let's do away with the slavery thing. It's not healthy for the country. It's not healthy to anybody. And the, uh, most of all, we don't want people coming here who are looking for a better life 
to see that this is the type of society that we've perpetuated. But then the Civil War came, and of course, slavery did end. Uh, and so in uh, this gentleman by the name of Prosper Berkman, he was from Belgium, and he was a horticulturalist. He found 310 acres in a little area called Augusta, Georgia, and he turned that into uh, a, a, big, a huge nursery where he uh, grew fruits, all types of other vegetation, plants, and uh, he was able to create peach orchards and he categorized uh, about 300 varieties of them. And at that point, he became the first uh, person to export peaches from the South up to New York. Now, one little note about that. The 315 acres that he bought, per that he purchased and developed, still exists today. There are no peach trees on it. It is now what we know as Augusta National Golf Course. That's where the Masters is played today, on that land. And the original house that he built for his family is the clubhouse at Augusta National. So, and they use all of the flowers and the, or the varietals of flowers that he grew right there on the golf course. If you've ever had an opportunity to visit the Masters, it is beautiful. But again, the, the idea was to revitalize the peach industry, streamline the varietals, design uh, the orchards, and to use them as, as, orna as ornamentals in landscape. And uh, so that's how the peach industry got started. And thus, that is how Georgia came to be known as the peach state. Because Mr. Berkman and his friends really tried hard to perpetuate this and turn the peaches that were beautiful in Europe, as he knew them, into an, a viable industry here. Now, even though they started the peach business as we know it, they, um, their production of peaches today is less than two-fifths of one percent of all the peaches that are grown in the, in the U.S. Again, South Carolina produces three times the amount of peaches. That they, in fact, their number one industry, if they could be known as being number one for anything, broiler, chickens, peanuts, quails, all of these, they're exported. But their cotton production, they are still the second largest cotton producers, Georgia, in the United States, second only to Texas. But that is just, it's very interesting, I thought, that for something that's so beautiful and so revered now, especially in our area, in South Carolina, that, uh, it, that it got this rough start. And it almost did not, had there not been a civil war, the, the peach landscape would probably look very, very different. Because you would still have the, I guess cotton would still have been uh, the primary crop and export from the area. Uh, today, with the migration uh, back at the end of World War II, 
where people in the South were migrating to the North looking for better positions. That took away the labor force that up until World War II had been used to pick the peaches. So now there was no labor force because all of the uh, poor uh, African-American people were moving north and looking, you know, it was called the Great Migration, I think it was called. They were moving north looking for, uh, a bet for better opportunities for their families and, of course, more money, and they were not being paid that much to pick peaches. So now all of the peaches that are grown and picked in the South are done by migrant workers because they're less, they can pay them less money. They just come here on a temporary, uh, I think it's called an H-2A visa, but even that has slowed down because immigration has now slowed down. Uh, it's taking longer to process those visas so that you can get these temporary migrant workers to come in. Those who were doing this kind of uh, picking for the uh, farmers have either gotten old and retired or they can no longer do that kind of work. It's not easy work. Uh, so there's just a shortage all around. And today, there are a lot of orchards that cannot even be harvested. The fruit just stays on the tree too long and just falls on the ground and rots because it have to be, peaches have to be picked it's three days from the time they're picked until the time they reach the supermarkets. And after that window, you cannot, and they have a certain window, each of the varietals, and they have to be picked in that time. And uh, the labor force right now is just not there. So a lot of the peach farmers are really in, in a bind. And there were a lot of farms this year that just didn't get, they just had to walk away from their entire crops because they weren't able to get the workers to do the picking to get them to market in this very, very short harvest window. This gentleman I told you about, Prosper Berkman, he's known as the uh, father of the, of the peach trade because he technically invented it. The first peaches from South Carolina to be shipped north weren't, weren't shipped until 1860, but Mr. Prosper, he invented this so-called peach export business, and that's how he gets that name, and that's how Georgia came to be known as the peach state, even though really the crops that they have today are very, is a very insignificant part of the Georgia agriculture economy. So that's all I have for you. Do you have questions for me? Yes, sir. Okay, how many varietals of peaches do you see in the supermarket? First of all, it's regional, but there are over 300 varieties of commercial peaches in the U.S., and more than that, uh, because not... Okay, let me step back. Peaches are produced in every state in the U.S. except Canada, um, except Alaska and Hawaii, for obvious reasons. Too far north, too far west, and... There's just not enough land in Hawaii to, for that type of production. Uh, but peaches are only produced commercially in 23 states. There are th 300 commercial varietals of peaches, but there are well over 400 of those that just grow, again, wild, because peaches still grow wild and they're feral all over the U.S. 
you'll see three types. I'll talk about the type first. The types are cling. They're the early peaches or the first peaches that, that you get. They're called clings because the meat clings to the pit. Second type is semi-freestone. They're the ones that kind of easily come off of the, the, the pit. And then the freestones where you just cut them and they just fall apart. As far as varietals are concerned, then it gets to be regional. And it's just whatever is grown here in your region. You probably don't get the same peaches here that we get in South Carolina because they're, they've all been conditioned to grow in the climate in which they're, you know, in the, uh, yeah, in the climate in which they're grown. So they're different. You, you get hardy, what's called hardy peaches up here, those that are bred to sustain the cold weather that you get. That's about as good an answer I can get. Now, I list the varietals in here, but then you'd have to dig down a little bit further to see which ones are in your area. Usually, where I live, they will list the varietal that's on there. They'll, you'll go to the supermarket, and they'll say South Carolina peaches from this county, and they'll list the varietal. Most people don't really care about that, uh, but then some do. They just, are they good? Do they... <laughs> That is absolutely right, and I think I told you that. <laughs> yes, there is no difference between a peach and a nectarine, except the nectarines, for some fluke gene, does not have fuzz on it. And I'll give you a good example. This year, the first peaches that were out, and I'm always there on the first morning they opened the doors <laughs> for sale, I got a half bushel of peaches, and I got them home. And I said, wow, this is... They looked just, they were nectarines. But I said, that's just, I'm not used to them looking like that. But they were nectarines, and everyone that came to my home, oh, you have nectarines, where did you find them? They're peaches. Yeah, we call them, I don't know why they're called nectarines, but they are peaches, and they do not have, they're the ones that have that, that odd gene that does not produce fuzz. Yeah, marketing. Mm -hmm. And it goes back to the varietals again. There's something in that particular varietal. And it's just clings. You don't see them traditionally after the first, uh, after the cling peaches come out. Clings, I'll give you my, our season, May to June. Late June to mid-July for the semi-freeze, and then uh, late July until mid-September for the free stones. Yeah. Hmm. That's a good question. I don't know. I know we got them by way of Europe. Oh, the question was, do our seeds make it to other parts of the world, the way the original seeds that were brought over by the Spaniards made it to us? I honestly can't answer that, unless someone like me, who's going to go back and live in South Africa, I take them with me. <laughs> yes, sir. You, your question is, of the 400 varietals, which of those contain are classified as nectarines? And the second part of your question was? White, white peaches. Okay, white peaches are different. First of all, they're, they're sweet. They contain something that's called the, the honey gene. They are predominantly grown in China. The, 
Occasionally, you will find white peaches. You, you won't find them where I live, not in the South. We don't have them. But in other parts of the country, there are white peaches, yes. Uh, and a few of the varietals are in the book, yes. But it's not, some, it's not something that I didn't include any white peach recipes in my book. I only said that you can use them in any recipe that's in the book. You could use them. Just expect it to be a sweeter taste. Okay. California's number one, South Carolina, Georgia, New Jersey, the fourth largest, New Jersey, fourth, Pennsylvania is five. I don't know, but I know that uh, Michigan would be up there. It's not in the top five, but it's, it, it's a big peach producing state. Yeah, I would have thought Michigan would have been fourth over New Jersey and Pennsylvania, but it's not. Hmm. I'm not familiar with them. We've probably, my family, we've probably even picked them, but at that time when I was a youngster, it, I didn't care about the varietals back then. We were just eating them. But uh, yeah, that is a, a Michigan peach and a very popular one, so I'm told, yeah. And they're, I think they're larger than most peaches, yeah. Yes, sir. How do you get new varietals of peaches? This is something that extension programs, for instance, we have the Clemson Extension in South Carolina. They're always experimenting with grafting uh, and creating new varietals. But it's, it's research that they will put out to the, uh, to the growers, and it's, uh, it's, only until then, it's not until then that we get that information, like, ah, oh, try this new varietal, and they'll have a name for it. Uh, but that's how that's done. Uh, again, this gentleman, Mr. Berkman, he did a lot of that research. He um, grafted about, a, well, at least a few hundred on his own because he, this was his business. He, was in, he had been a horticulturalist in Belgium, and that's why he wanted to come and revitalize the peach industry in the South and develop all these, you know, develop the new varietals but they're being developed all the time. I never remove pe the skin from my peaches when I'm cooking for my family. If I'm doing it for an event as a chef, yeah, then I will peel them, but I do not peel peaches that I cook for my family. Okay, what does it take to grow a peach tree? Uh, I can tell you that it takes, they're very labor intensive. It takes four to five years for a peach tree from the time it's planted to bear its first fruit, or the fruit that's edible. Uh, the, there are laborers who are constantly working on the orchards where, where we are, because during the wintertime, they have to be pruned back. As soon as they start to grow in the springtime, they're still pruning them, uh, cutting back off the little, little bad seedlings, because that makes the, the fruit that eventually comes, gets picked on the tree larger. Uh, the soil has to be treated. So it's a year-round process to growing peaches. Uh, insects, insects uh, damage? Not so much. And let me tell you why, and I found this out, and I thought this was interesting. When I spent my day in the orchard, uh, peaches are always picked by hand, which again is why we're having so much trouble uh, and losing, not losing, but a lot of orchards are just, uh, a lot of orchards didn't get picked this summer, as I said. 
but they're picked by hand. If a peach falls on the ground, it stays there. And that is how the uh, orchard growers control insects. They leave those on the ground so that animals and insects will eat what's on the ground and they won't bother what's in the tree. But other than just fertilizing, no, no insecticides are used on the trees in our area. Yeah, well I have, I have two on my property. <laughs> And I don't really, I fertilize once a year, but that's it. I, the, my problem is the deer, because a lot of the fruit grows low, and the deer will come by and, and, and eat them, but I really don't have a problem with insects. You know, that is a very good question, and I don't know. This is just the second year that we've experienced this shortage of workers in, in our area, uh, because they're all imported, all the growers that I know, they actually import uh, their workers, they pay for their visas, they uh, give them lodgings, uh, they feed them, they give them transportation, and it's, has, up until two years ago, this was not a, as big of a problem as it is now. Uh, as to what will happen, I don't know. Our, our growers are purchasing, again, all the land that they can get, planting new peach trees all the time, and you can see this as you drive down what I call Highway 25, which goes right through Edgefield County. Uh, I drove that road just last week, and I saw a lot of new orchards being planted. So I, I really don't know how they're going to solve for this uh, worker problem. I think it's gonna take another year to just see how it all plays out, to see if they are gonna just, as the older orchards now, instead of replanting them, just let them die out because they know that they won't have the resources to pick them and just continue to pick you know, what they can have with the amount of workers that they get. For instance, uh, the, the, the farm that I go to most often is called Yance Peaches. They have 15 full-time guys on their staff because remember I said during the winter time, there's still a lot to be done. So they have uh, 15 workers full-time. They expect to get anywhere between 20 and 25 just walk-ons at the beginning of the peach season, which they got every year. People would just walk on and they would hire them. They didn't get those this year. So everybody's been working on a 12-hour day, seven days a week since the beginning of peach season, just trying to stay up with the, with the production. Uh, that question is, do you think that maybe the growers might go, might lean towards getting robots to pick in the future? You know, I think a lot depends on the finances. There is not a lot of money uh, or excess money in the, pro in the profit margin of growing peaches. We expect in my area to pay no more than 69 cents a pound for peaches in the summertime. Uh, given the fact that there's a four-year at least ramp up for each tree that needs to be picked, is the money there for the growers to, you know, uh, be able to afford a robot? It's an interesting question. I, it's interesting because, uh, as I said, they're always picked by hand, and they've all, that's always the way it's been done. But, and when you think that now cotton that used to be picked by hand is picked by machines, you would think that 
if there were such a machine, or if it was possible, that the peach growers would have already thought about that. Well, I would even volunteer to go out there and pick for free if I could take half of them home with me. <laughs> I first approached publishers and agents. They're like, who are interested in you know, peaches except to eat them? That's, and and a, maybe a peach cobbler every now and then. So again, when I started to experiment with peaches, I wanted to uh, show that you could do more with peaches than just eat them. Of course, why wouldn't you not just want to eat them? But that there was more of an application for them. So what I've included in my book are peaches that can be used night to day, soup to nuts, uh, and appetizers, and breakfast foods, and uh, sweet, savory. So there's in beverages and sauces. So there are peaches in here for everybody, no matter how you, for instance, I have uh, someone asked me once on a radio interview, are you serious? A peach omelet? <laughs> Yeah, peach omelet, and it's good, too. Uh, so I've tried to include a variety of peaches because it is such, especially in our area, we and we have such an abundance of them. Uh, oh, that was another thing. Publishers thought that this would only be, uh, that this book would only be of interest to someone who lives in the South because we do have peaches and have a long season. Uh, but it's just a good way of making use of all of that goodness that's growing out there. Yeah. Okay. Let me tell you what the ladies have prepared for you today. Out of this book, they have prepared the peach thyme pound cake, the raspberry peach crumble, and a mascarpone peach prosciutto crostini. So feel free to enjoy some of them. Okay. Thank you.